Welcome to the Stuff of Nightmares podcast. Hey, what's happening everybody? My name is Rick and I'll be your guide on this little journey to get your true crime and paranormal fix. We'll be talking about everything from monsters in the closets to monsters next door. So make sure you keep an eye on your neighbor, you look under your bed, you check your closets, because the stuff of nightmares starts now. Warning. This episode may contain graphic descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. In 2019, about 16.5% of the American population was 65 years old or over. Nearly one out of every ten of these people suffer from elder abuse, including physical abuse, neglect, and exploitation if they lived at home. That number rises to one in six if they reside in a community setting such as a nursing home. Criminals find creative ways to try and defraud the elderly into giving away their life savings, and many fall victim to these scams. Crimes against our elderly infuriate me because these people have been the backbone of our society for decades. But it appears as though compassion and morality have become a thing of the past as people begin to allow the television and computers to raise their children instead of themselves taking on the responsibility of being a parent. In the American prison system, over 12% of inmates are 55 years old or older, with Florida housing over 13,500 senior inmates alone. Many of these inmates have been in prison for many years, but what about the ones who decide that they will not be taken for granted anymore? What about the ones who look so sweet and innocent on the outside, but on the inside the fire of hate and murder burns inside? Would you be able to look into the eyes of someone and tell they were a murderer? Just think about that the next time you jump in front of that little old lady at the grocery store, because your life and your time are more important than hers. And think about that the next time you beep your horn at the old man walking across the street pushing his walker just because you want to get your latte before going to work. Remember this, when that feeble old man or that little old lady turns to you and gives you a dirty look for doing it, they may just be sizing you up to see if you'll fit in their freezer. Robert J. Wallace In August of 1955, Nine-year-old Francis Jean Wallace was having fun coloring in a coloring book while singing along with the radio. Little did she know, her singing was starting to irritate her grandfather, 78-year-old Robert J. Wallace. Robert had been trying to take a nap, but Francis was keeping him from falling asleep because she would not stop singing. He got up from the bed in another room, went to the kitchen to get a cup of milk, drank it, and on the way back out of the kitchen grabbed his three-quarter pound hammer from the toolbox. The little blonde girl never saw Robert as he came from behind her and hit her once with the ball-peen hammer in the middle of her forehead. He drug her to the middle of the room so he could get a full swing with the hammer and proceeded to hit her in the head at least 20 times before stopping. He took the hammer back into the kitchen and returned to sit beside the girl's battered body while waiting for someone to come home and find them. Francis's 13-year-old sister, Glenda, who had been out playing with friends when the incident occurred, was the first person to come home. When she saw her sister lying on the floor covered in blood, she ran out of the house screaming and ran to the neighbors for help. Mrs. Gay Archer ran to the house to see if she could help and asked Robert what had happened. 
He simply said he killed her because she was making too much noise. He was arrested and charged with murder. On August 30th, he waived his preliminary hearing and was given a sanity hearing to determine if he was fit enough to stand trial. In the months before the murder, Robert had been trying to harm himself and tried to commit suicide numerous times. Not much information can be found of this case after the hearing was waived, but in November of 1955, Robert was indicted and by December of that year, he would be hospitalized due to hardened arteries. On February 12, 1957, Robert dies in the Rusk State Hospital in Cherokee, Texas. Tamara Samsonova Tamara Samsonova was born on April 25, 1947 in the Russian city of Uzhor. She lived in Moscow after high school and after graduating from the Moscow State Linguistic Institute, she moved to St. Petersburg where she married Alexei Samsonova in 1971. In 2005, Alexei disappeared and after police did an extensive search, could not find any trace of him. After Alexei's disappearance, Tamara began running out of room in her apartment. On September 6, 2003, Tamara got into an argument with the tenant and killed him. The 44-year-old man would be dismembered and thrown into the street. In March of 2015, Tamara would meet 79-year-old Valentina Yulanova through a mutual friend. The friend asked Valentina if Tamara could stay with her while Tamara's apartment was being renovated. Tamara would live with Valentina for a few months and liked living there so much she refused to leave. On July 23, 2015, Tamara laced Valentina's supper with sleeping pills and when Valentina finally passed out, Tamara proceeded to cut her head off while she was still alive with a hacksaw. She would place the head in a pot to boil while she proceeded to dismember the rest of the body. Various body parts were put into plastic bags and disposed of throughout the city. On July 26, 2015, a decapitated and mutilated body was discovered wrapped in a shower curtain in a district in St. Petersburg. On July 27th, after an extensive door-to-door -door search, police were able to identify the body. When police knocked on Valentina's door, Tamara answered and allowed them in. Once inside, investigators found a blood-covered hacksaw, a knife, traces of blood in the bathroom, a torn shower curtain, and a diary. In the diary, investigators were shocked to find descriptions of 11 murders written in Russian, German, and English. Tamara would be taken into custody on suspicion of murder. Through further investigation, police obtained CCTV footage of Valentina's building, which showed images of Tamara going in and out of the apartment seven times during one night, carrying plastic bags or dragging them down the stairs leaving a blood trail. One image shows her carrying the saucepan which held the head walking down the stairs and going outside with it before going out of frame. The pan and head were never found. They are believed to have been thrown in a trash can that was picked up and sent to the dump. Four months later on November 26, 2015, Tamara was determined to be a danger to herself as well as others and sent to a psychiatric hospital in Kazan for treatment. Tamara would admit to killing Valentina over a fight about dirty cups, but investigators believe she had killed more than the 11 people described in the diaries. Some of the body parts were never found, 
and it is believed that Tamara ate some of the victim's lungs as well as other organs. Tamara Samsonova will forever be known as the Granny Ripper and is currently under investigation for 14 murders. Ray and Faye Copeland Ray Copeland was born on December 30, 1914. During his childhood, his family would move often from one town to another all over the country until finally settling in the town of Ozark Hills, Arkansas. During the Great Depression, things got so bad for the family that Ray had to drop out of school in the fourth grade to help out on the family farm. His life of crime started at the age of 20 when he stole a pair of hogs from his father and sold them in another town. His father, Jess, found out what he had done, but when police came to investigate the missing hogs, Jess covered up for Ray and no charges were ever filed. He would continue to steal livestock for a few years, but his crimes would soon start to become more serious. In 1936, Ray was arrested and charged for forging government checks in Harrison, Arkansas, which would land him a year in the county jail. In 1940, Ray would meet a 19-year-old woman in a doctor's office during a routine visit to the physician. Ray and Faye Della Wilson would soon begin dating, and after only six months together, they would get married. During the next few years, their family would grow. They would have two sons before leaving Arkansas and moving to Fresno County, California. Once there, they would have three more children, a girl and two more boys. In 1949, the same year their youngest son was born, Ray was accused of stealing horses from a local farmer and their reputation in Fresno County was ruined. They would flee California and move back to Arkansas where one month later, Ray was arrested and charged with stealing cattle once again. After completing his one-year jail sentence, Ray picked up the family and moved them again, this time to Rocky Comfort, Missouri, where he was again arrested for cattle theft. Ray would continue to move the family from town to town over the next few years, picking up more arrests and convictions along the way. In 1966, they moved back to Missouri where they purchased a farm with 40 acres of land in Mooresville. Faye took a job at a local glove-making factory while Ray worked the farm. Needing money but afraid that another arrest would send him to prison for a long time, Ray came up with a plan to scam people by purchasing cattle without the funds to do so. Since his reputation for writing bad checks was well known, he knew no one would allow him to buy or sell cattle on his own. He would pick up drifters and hitchhikers and employ them as farmhands on his farm. He would then have the farmhands purchase cattle with forged checks from Ray's own checkbook. Ray would sell the cattle, and since the drifters were only traveling through the town, they would be gone long before the police would come to investigate the checks, which Ray would say were stolen and forged from his book. The scam worked for a while, but eventually one of the drifters, Gerald Perkins, was interrogated and told police about Ray's scam. Ray was yet again arrested and spent almost two years in jail for the forged checks. Once released from jail, Ray made some changes to his scheme. Instead of using checks from his own account, he would have the drifters get a post office box and open a checking account in their own name. They would then use that account to buy the cattle, and once the transaction was done, 
Ray would kill the drifter. Faye would become an accomplice and start helping with this scheme. They would claim between 5 and 12 victims using this scheme until 1989 when a former employee, Jack McCormick, called the Crime Stoppers hotline to tell them about the Copeland's activities. He told police that he had found human bones on the farm and when Ray found out Jack knew what him and Faye were doing, Ray tried to kill him, but he got away. Police were skeptical of the story, but looked into Ray's criminal history and decided to investigate further. With search warrant in hand, police arrived at the farm and began looking for evidence. During their week-long search, investigators found three bodies in the barn, a list of former farmhands that Faye had written, and a quilt made from the clothing of the murdered victims. They would end up finding another body in a shallow grave and yet another that had been thrown down a well. All five men had been shot in the head with a 22 caliber weapon and that weapon was found in the Copeland home. The five bodies were identified and matched to a list that Faye had written with a red X beside their names. There were a total of 12 names on that list that had a red X beside their name. Police believed that the red X indicated that that person had been killed by the Copelands. On November 1st, 1990, Faye went on trial and insisted she knew nothing about the murders. The defense tried to paint a picture of her being an obedient wife that was abused and treated badly by her husband. The jury, however, did not buy it and convicted the 69-year-old on four counts of murder and one count of manslaughter. She was given four death sentences for the murders and life without parole for the manslaughter. In March of 1991, Ray would go on trial. At first, he tried to use an insanity defense, then tried to get a plea bargain deal. But prosecution would not agree, and the first-degree murder charges would remain intact. 76-year-old Ray was convicted on five counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to death by lethal injection. He would only last a few years in prison and died while on death row in 1993. On August 10, 2002, Faye suffered a stroke which left her partially paralyzed and unable to speak. A few weeks later in September 2002, Governor Holden authorized the medical release and she was paroled to a nursing home in her hometown. On December 30, 2003, 82-year-old Faye died of natural causes. The Copelands made their mark in history as being the oldest couple to be given the death penalty. Like what you're hearing so far? Make sure to never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. Our paranormal experience this week is from Nate in Pennsylvania. Take it away, Nate. Hi, my name is Nate. I'm from York, Pennsylvania. I'll just start right at the beginning. Uh, my first paranormal experience it was on a house of Poplar Street in Dover. And uh, yeah, we'd lived there for a couple years at that point, And... I was in the shower. I remember my mom coming in, and she had walked out. I didn't know she walked out, and I felt a hand on my shoulder. Instant panic. Mom came in. She was trying to console me. Kept telling her what happened. 
she knew I mean she had been sensitive to the paranormal since she was a kid so she understood I was still I didn't I had no idea what what that was I didn't know until years later after more stuff started happening what it actually was fast forward a few years after my parents divorced we moved in with my stepdad and in his house there was a few there was a couple spirits that one I call I just call them little kids because it always seemed like little kids running back and forth in the halls random times throughout the night then we had an old lady that actually provided like a sense of comfort and and nurturing throughout the house in fact after Adams divorced with his initial wife my stepdad he uh, had these twins young twins about a year old and he said at, at night he would always feel like some kind of that old lady nurturing feeling in their room whenever he would enter and uh, she had a rocking chair or there was a rocking chair in the attic and if you went up to the attic that rocking chair always seemed to be rocking always I remember a few times I walked up to the attic to get something and even though you knew it would probably happen you would uh it would still scare the crap out of you come sprinting down the stairs that's pretty much my extent of paranormal activity leading into the George Street house from then I started to uh, experience a lot more started started off we moved in and there was three crosses on a on one of the support beams in the basement later found out that was because of a car accident that happened in the front yard and three kids died I think they're around like the 14 to 16 range and it creeped my stepmom at the time out she did not like it so she took the crosses down and that's when stuff started happening it always felt uneasy to begin with like you could always I could tell that it was an old house so it had that old house feel the old house vibes but man when she took those crosses down <laughs> first experience was the first weekend I stayed at my dad since she took the crosses down me and my stepbrother at the time were in our room our third floor was split up into two parts one was mine and my stepbrother's room one was the playroom had all the toys and stuff in and I'm trying to sleep my stepbrother's already sleeping and I hear someone playing with the Tonka truck in the next room I think it's Jeffrey I just I, I pass it off well an hour goes by he's still up there it's like one in the morning so I go in there to like Jeffrey go to bed that's not Jeffrey it's a kid in about 1800s style clothing just playing with the Tonka truck my first response was I ran to the bed and just hoped it would go away mom ha at that point had talked to me about you know trying to talk to them trying to converse them sometimes they're just they need help passing on alright well I'll give it a shot so I went in there I said who are you and I want to say he told me his name was Johnny but he, he told me his name he he said he lives there and I was like no I was like um you may have lived here at one point but we, we live here now like I said I'd started to come to terms with the fact that I was sensitive to all this so I was 
Like, we can coexist, but just realize that we're going to be here too. And honestly, besides voices and sometimes I'd hear the playing, I never saw him again. The fact that we had just moved in and kind of stirred things up, I think he was trying to make his presence known, like, why are you guys in my house? But like after that, we would hear uh, little feet running up and down the stairs on the third floor. Most of the stuff happened third floor. Oh, in the living room and dining room, we would have a smell of cigarette smoke. My stepmom used to say it was American spirits, because her dad used to smoke them, I guess. But uh, you always smelled cigarette smokes. No one smoked in that. That was just one of the smaller things that happened. That And that was also the first time that we lived in the house. We moved out, moved back in probably four or five years later and that was uh that was really interesting we it was quiet for the first like week or so i remember thinking you know this this is weird this is not how this house felt before it was too calm calm before the storm and uh i don't know what started it but it things just started going crazy i would wake up at least two or three times a night with my sheets getting pulled off me um I'd wake up and hear puttering around my room to the side of my bed, and I'd open my eyes and my shoes would be right next to the pillow. I had a Penn State tin on my dresser. I would hear tapping on that, little different drum beats. Now, those three, I'm convinced, were a spirit. We, we named Josh, because it was the name of one of the kids that had died, and he was the same age as me at the time. I, my dad and I had talked many times about, you know, we think because I was the same age, he, he latched onto me. He was trying to, he was lonely in a sense. He just needed somebody to interact with. And so I accepted him. I, you know, sometimes I'd, I'd hear him and I'd be like, oh, Josh, you got me again. Or, Josh, was that you? If I, if I asked, Josh, was that you? I'd hear, hear a nice little bang. He loved to turn my TV to static. I'd be in the middle of a football game he was a prankster. So I'd, I'd be in the middle of a football game. It would start to get intense. And right in the middle of a big play, the TV would turn to static. Like, Josh, knock it off. Go back. It was so wild. Um, and it, it, that became normal for me. I, I mean, I would see, I called him Josh Happenings. And he'd be like, what was that? Oh, nothing. Don't worry about it. He had this signature sound, though, which is the... Uh, the reason I know that he stuck with me for many years after that. I mean, the entire house, walls, ceilings, everything could have been covered with carpet. If he was around, he'd let you know it was him by the sound of a marble dropping on a hardwood floor. And when I lived in the dorms, and I was in the military, I heard that the very first night. And uh, he stuck with me throughout most of my Air Force career. It was, it was pretty interesting. While we were still in the George Street house, before before I moved out, we started to have these uh, paranormal investigators come in. Um, one of my friend's mom was a paranormal investigator. And we had her team come over, and I ha like I said, I hadn't heard or seen that little kid in a while, at least physically. I could try to connect things to maybe that was him. Well, then we had a little kid come over on the EVP on one of the investigations. Can you find me now? You can't find me. Now where am I? And uh, he was playing hide and seek with us with the, I can't remember what, the K2 meter. 
we'd be we'd shine it to one area of the room and it would light off then it'd go quiet again and then you'd hear over the EVP afterwards now find me it was crazy this little kid was playing hide and seek with us and I mean other than that there was a lot of I remember we got a get out while we were down in the basement there was probably five or six different voices that we heard which is when we started thinking you know and we started putting things together with the investigators of maybe there's kind of some kind of portal to the spiritual world right there in that house because there were some things that would stay constant as far as some of the hauntings then there was others that pop out of nowhere and then never see him again one of the other constant ones was my brother kept seeing a little boy with an older man down at the bottom of the stairs with shadow figures like they were talking he would hear voices at night go go check it out and that he would see the shadow figures standing there talking stuff kept happening there even after i left which confirmed to all of us that it wasn't just because of the fact that i was sensitive that was bringing them out they just some of them didn't want us there some of them just wanted to be hurt but anyway i joined the air force left for the military during basic and tech school i think it was just there was so much going on i couldn't really be open i was just i was so involved in what was going on then once i got to south dakota at ellsworth air force base i remember sitting in my dorm room the first night and i was waiting i had an uncle who was also stationed there and so my cousin was going to come pick me up and go over and I was just sitting in my room kind of just getting my bearings just got done flying over and first time being away from home by myself really hadn't at that point I had had contact with one guy from the fire station I was going to be at um that was all so I was kind of getting getting my bearings and dead quiet the entire dorm was carpet except for the kitchenette downstairs and uh I heard the marble I'm like Josh is that you and then the light flickered oh man that's wild he just followed me out to South Dakota so I called my dad and I let him know and we thought that was cool I would see uh, for the first time I started seeing apparitions of Josh I'd be coming up the stairwell in the dorms and right before the door to exit the stairwell he'd just be standing there like move out of the way Josh and he would, I mean, it would, it would go away, which is why I, I still believe that was Josh, whether it was just, could have been something else messing with me, especially once, once you think about what came later. Um, so I got, met my wife, we got married. We're not sure if it was Josh or not, but we, I just kind of say, cause that's when things turned the normal Josh things. You'd hear the marble noise, but you didn't hear or you didn't really experience any normal Josh things after that everything became hostile I don't know if he just didn't like my wife coming into the picture you know it was just me and Josh buddies and uh, I, I don't know but he started slamming cabinets um, he, he would keep her up at night he wouldn't if I was at work he would not let her sleep whether it was uh, cabinets uh, we had a was one of like the sliding door closets. He would open that and slam it shut while she was sleeping. Um, he turned the sink on. It got 
pretty crazy and you could tell it was malicious because it was always while she was doing something she would ask him to stop because I was like Stace just ask him to stop and he would ask she would ask him to stop he would do it more then she started to feel like she was getting physically attacked she would wake up sore wake up not feeling good and so I I had to talk to him like one day I got home and I just sat in the bedroom I said Josh if this is you messing with my wife, you need to get out of my house right now. You've stuck with me for a lot of years, but we can't, we can't be doing this. And, uh, I mean, I probably talked at him for, like, probably about five minutes just soon. Listen, I don't want you following me around anymore if you're going to be acting like this towards my wife. And I never had a Josh experience, never heard the marble sound at all after that. But we learned that the apartment complex we were in at the time as with a lot of property in South Dakota is partially or completely built on Indian burial grounds and this started to explain a lot of other stuff that was going on my wife took a picture during the chaos of getting woken up in the middle of the night she took a picture in the bathroom just um i had not gotten home yet when she took this picture i was deployed and uh she took the picture to show me she had done some stuff to it and there's a giant black spot that just kind of it started off really dark in the center and just kind of radiated out and it had like a like a dark red ring around it and i've i've showed it my my dad had a girlfriend there for a while she was a or his fiance, she was a medium and she took one look at the picture and she got sick she looked right at me she's like that's something demonic I kind of had that feeling when my wife showed me that picture we got out of that house pretty quick um, out of that apartment we moved in we moved closer to base and that house was quiet we didn't have, have much going on at that house it was previously base housing then they moved it off base and contracted it out so for about three or four years didn't really have much going on wasn't until we moved on base that is when when we had always heard stories about hey if you move to if you move into this place your stuff's gonna happen these houses are notoriously haunted like okay well i'm used to it whatever whatever was in there did not like me one bit never messed with Stacy never messed with anybody else there did not like me I'd get pushed down the stairs get pushed up the stairs my feet would get grabbed trying to walk up the stairs um if I was in the living room there'd be times where I'd just be chilling laying down on the couch and something would be trying to push me off the couch I woke up with scratches so uh now my term was almost over so I talked to my aunt who is Native, is Native American, uh, Rosebud Sue out there. Her and her sister talked to me, you know, about spirituality side of it, you know, if, if it is an, a Native spirit, how I might be able to do that. We ended up just saging the house and trying to work that out. Things slowed down for a while after we saged, it started happening again, but I was out of the Air Force in a couple weeks at that point. Um, and 
Quite frankly, it can mess with me all all they want. But it doesn't that doesn't bother me. They weren't messing with my wife or children, so as long as that wasn't happening, I could live with it. So then we moved back. We moved back home. I got out of the military. Um, I wanted to bring the kids back closer to family. Lived with my mom there for a while, um, for a couple months, until we got back on our feet. And I remember I had forgotten about the old lady at that point. And I went upstairs to put some, put one of our boxes in the attic. <laughs> and I saw that rocket chair. Because I hadn't seen it in so many years, I nearly fell down those stairs. <laughs> Caught me off guard. So, while we were searching for a house, there was a house we found behind York Suburban High School. And you know, my stepdad's a realtor. We went and met up with him to go look at, that, at this house. And the second we walked in there, it was... It was just straight scary. Um, every single one of us, all four of us, felt uneasy. We felt like we were being pressured out of there. I I started to feel sick. Um, my mom started to feel sick. I believe my mom got scratches or attacked physically. I, um, Me and my stepdad both felt sick. I felt like a huge weight over my shoulders, like my legs were getting weak. And so we didn't even finish looking throughout the whole house. We got out of there. We knew we weren't wanted. And as we were standing outside talking about what we had just been through, we, we would feel the eyes staring at us from the house. And it was not a pleasant stare. Like we, we could feel that they were the spirits in there, which I'm 100% were demonic. Didn't want us there. And they didn't even want us standing in front of there. They wanted us gone. They wanted the house and the property completely empty. So we obliged. We got out of there. So moved into our, bought, bought our new home, moved in, and uh, there was an old man there. That I mean, his dad built the house. He helped his dad build the house. He lived and died in that house ever since he was what 14, 15 years old, and. Uh, Every, everyone had talked to us about him before we even officially moved in we had talked to the neighbors and they were like yeah Denny was a good guy bit of a hoarder but a good guy we started to move stuff in and I was in my wife and I were in my daughter's room setting up her crib and we hear we felt like an uneasy something wasn't happy that we were there like we were invading on his territory. And so I had already learned about Denny at that point. So I was like, Denny, I, we're not here to take over. You, you've you passed on to another life. I, and we we have bought your house and we were moving in. And we we're going to raise our family in this house. Like we can coexist. I don't I, I don't want to push you out of your house as much as it is mine. And no, we're not gonna. We're not gonna be be startled by you being around our house. I mean, I I had said I was like, I'm used to, I'm used to the noises, the creaks and the cracks. Walk around, do your thing, open doors. Live here like you like you always have, and 
will we'll coexist. And we hear just that. We hear the we hear him walking around. We hear a door open. Downstairs was his workshop. He had like three different workbenches that still, although well, still down there. And uh, every once in a while, you'd hear like big bangs down there, like he's working on something. And uh, yeah, it's cool. After all those years, like moving into a house with a spirit that we can legitimately coexist with. There's no nasty stuff anymore. It's every house I've lived in pretty much has been haunted. So it was bound to happen where I was just going to find a house where I could find a spirit that wasn't going to drive us crazy. And um, that's that's pretty much it. I mean, that's up to the present day. Thanks for sharing your experience with us this week, Nate. And thank you for your service. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Stuff of Nightmares podcast. Thanks for listening. If you would like to find out more about today's topic, you can check out our sources in the show notes on Facebook and our website at www.thestuffofnightmares.show. Like, share, and follow us on Facebook, as well as subscribe and give us a positive review on your favorite podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have an experience that you would like to share with the show, you can either email me to admin at thestuffofnightmarespodcast.show or message me through Facebook. I am your host, Rick Ness. I will see you next episode where I hope to find out what keeps you up at night.